You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Children are making their way to their classes. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Psalm 130. You immediately notice that's a departure from what we're used to over the last so many weeks as we have been preaching through the book of Revelation, and we'll resume that again in the first of the year. But for these four weeks of the month in December, we usually take a break and we we focus in on something that our, our pastors believe is important for us as a church, what will encourage us, give us the life that we need and to renew us. And that's what we begin this morning as we consider a theme that we really are working through in the book of Revelation. And that is Jesus is our king. Our ultimate purpose in preaching through the book of Revelation is not going to be that we would unpack some secrets or decode some truth or learn something sensational that would uh, gas. Uh, gather our attention and, and change us because it's, it's wild and, and interesting, but simply that we want to exalt Jesus as our King. Well, we have a prime opportunity to do that this month as we consider Jesus our King and a few different qualities of His kingship. This morning, we are considering Jesus, who is our King of hope. If I've learned anything from church life or from the Christian life, or from just general life in the world, it is that every single person needs, among many things, but at the top of the list, every single person needs hope. Every person who has walked into the sanctuary this morning is in one way or another, to one degree or another, discouraged and in need of hope. Every person who walks into every counseling room, every community group, every one-on-one Bible study or accountability time, in times of sorrow, in times of sin, in times of suffering, everyone is wrestling with discouragement. And that makes sense because you think about the kind of world that we live in. We live in a discouraging world. In fact, as I think about the Christian life, I find that In large part, that is what the Christian life is, fighting against discouragement. That's even true at this time of year. We would typically expect that the Christmas season would be one where all of our cares would go away, and that's a a wonderful romantic thought to have. But I think if we're all honest with our experience, that's just not the way that it is. Even though we may decorate, We may turn on bright, blinking, colorful lights, that we change our attire, we have some parties together, we eat some cookies, we share some gifts. It doesn't change the fact that every single person in the universe is in desperate, constant need of hope. And what we're grateful for this morning and this season is that Jesus, who is king, is most certainly the king of hope. We're going to look this morning at Psalm 130 as we consider what does it mean to wait in hope? What does it mean to look expectantly, eagerly for the coming of this king 
who carries hope in his wings. And how should we respond to him, even at this Christmas season and then in the year to come? How do we respond to a king who is full of hope? Well, I want to show you three responses this morning as we look at Psalm 130, beginning with the first four verses, as we see this response. We ought to cry in faith to the king of hope. As we look at this psalm, we are reminded again what is so true of all of the psalms and those who have written these psalms, and that is that they do not hide the real depth of our sin and suffering. One of the things that I so appreciate about the gospel, about the word of God, about Christianity itself, is that unlike all the other religions of the world, all the other philosophies of the world, we do not need to shy away from the very real reality of sin and suffering in the world. Instead, we are able, because of the hope of our king, to embrace what this world is really like. We don't need to throw on decorations. We don't need to shine distracting lights. We don't need to cover it with some facade. We can embrace it and take it head on because our king is the king of hope. We know in our personal lives, as we consider what we go through on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis as fallen people in a fallen world that every single person in the universe is simultaneously sinner and sufferer. When you get a hold of that in your heart and you, you wrestle with the reality in your own life that you are a sinner, and then you compound it by realizing that in this fallen world, you also are simultaneously a sufferer, it doubles your need for hope. The people of the world, the people of Paramount Church, do not need hope simply because we are imperfect. We do not need hope simply because we are sinners. We need hope because we are all three imperfect sinners and sufferers at the same time. Listen to the cry of the psalmist. Listen from where he is crying in verse 1 of Psalm 130. He says, out of the depths, I have cried to you. Throughout the Psalms and throughout the scriptures, there are pictures painted for us in the words. Here's one of those places. Out of the depths, I have cried to you. The depths that they picture a place of deep darkness. It's the kind of word that, that they and we would use to talk about a lagoon, a deep abyss of water, that if you were to stare down into it, it would become murkier and darker the further down that you go. And here the psalmist is expressing his experience in life as being someone who is crying out, not from the surface of the water, not from a mountaintop, but from the depths of darkness the depths of sin, the depths of suffering, the depths of discouragement, the depths of hopelessness, a deep, dark lagoon buried in sin and suffering. The Psalms do not hide the reality of the darkness of the world or the struggle of what it means to be a sinner and sufferer in the world. But rather, as we read here, 
The Bible tells sinners and sufferers like us what we should do because there is a king of hope. That even out of the depths, we should cry in faith to the Lord. That's exactly what he says. Out of the depths, I have cried to you, Lord. Reminder again, all caps, when you see that in your Bible, is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The name of ultimate presence, ultimate righteousness, ultimate faithfulness, ultimate hope. He cries out from the depths to Yahweh himself. It's only those who feel the depths of sin and suffering who cry out to the Lord like this. Have you ever seen someone cry out in the midst of grief, in the midst of pain or suffering or illness or despair, or fear? Have you seen someone cry out? Have you seen a child cry out in one of those moments? They all have certain things in common. Their mouths droop in a sad kind of frown. Their, their, their eyebrows furrow together. They throw their heads back, and out comes this wailing cry. The only people who cry like that are people who have come to feel the reality, the depths of their discouragement, of their struggle, of their sin, of their suffering. But we see something different in the Psalms. We see something different among those who call out to a particular God whose name is Yahweh, who is the covenant God of righteousness and hope and grace and mercy and love. They cry out independence. You can take all of the people of the world who are, who are crying out, and they would look very similar. Mouths droop, eyes brows furrowed, heads kicked back, screaming out. But there is an unseen difference, and it's the unseen difference that comes out in psalms like this. Because not everyone cries out like the psalmist. Some cry out from the depths, but only because they're in the depths. They don't cry out with the response that we're seeing here. And that is with a unique kind of cry, crying out in faith to the king of hope. Notice the way that the psalmist talks about this crying. These people who cry out in faith cry out by name. Out of the depths I have cried to you, Lord. Even in verse 3, it's repeated again. If you, Lord. Verse 2, Lord hear my voice. Those who cry out in faith, feeling the depth of their need of sin and suffering, in sin and suffering, they are calling out by name. Notice how else they call out. They cry out with zeal. Look at verse two, Lord, hear my voice, exclamation mark. It's not something that's being taken lightly. It's not quiet. It's not whispered. It's a cry of exclamation. Please, with zeal, hear my voice. It's a cry of utter dependence. It is a cry of utter need and hope. Hear my voice. They cry with a humble appeal. Look at this. Next in verse two, let your ears be attentive to the sound of my pleadings. It's a genuine request in humility. It's a request from someone who cannot solve it any other way. Please let your ears be attentive to the sound of my pleading. The Bible is clear 
that we have many serious reasons to be discouraged. We have many reasons to be hopeless or to feel hopeless. In fact, you see even one here in verse 3, getting at the very nature of our trouble, the very nature of our need. And that is always going to come back to our sin. There's no way around it. Yes, we live in a fallen world, but our ultimate need is wrapped up not in what's happening outside of us. Our ultimate need is what's happening inside of us. That's why he goes on. He says, if you, Lord, Yahweh, were to keep account of guilty deeds, Lord, who could stand? If you were to keep track or account of all of my guilty deeds, all the ways that I have failed you, all the ways that I have fallen short of your glory, all of the ways that I have shirked my responsibilities, all of the people that I have mistreated or ignored, all of the ways that I have failed by commission and omission, no one could stand because you are too great. Your law is too high. You heard it this morning. I chose it on purpose. That responsive reading from our church catechism, it expressed to us this very despair, though you might not have heard it in there. Matthew 22, where Jesus talks about the two great commands, is a place of some of the worst news in the Bible. It's the most despairing thing that a king could say to you when you ask him, What's the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he says? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Then it gets worse because he volunteers a second commandment, which is like it. Love your neighbor the way that you so incredibly, marvelously love yourself. That's the worst news in the Bible. Because I could never do that. I have never loved God. You have never loved God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. In fact, you and I cannot. It cannot be done. You cannot, you never have, you never will love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. You, like me, Spend the majority of your time thinking about yourself. And here he says, no, here's my commandment. If you want to have favor with me, you have to think about everyone else the way you think about yourself. I cannot do it. But I do know somebody who can, and I do know somebody who did, and he did it on behalf of people like us. That's the king of hope. Because he came and he said, you cannot love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. You never will, but I can and I will and I have and I'm giving it to you as a gift. You will never love your neighbor as yourself, but I can and I have and I will and I'm giving that to you as a gift. And because of those two great gifts of him keeping the two great commandments on our behalf, we have what? And it is hope in a king who is full of hope and has entered our world to do this very thing. Think about that. Stick that in your Christmas. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why the baby showed up. To love the Lord 
his God with all of his heart, soul, and mind in my place and to love me, his neighbor, in my place. That's an astounding reality. That, that is the gospel. The only people who cry out like this can do so when they grasp those two things. The unreachable, unbending, heavy, crushing weight of God's law, his expectations, his commands, love me, love your neighbor, and the gospel that comforts us in the midst of our despair about it. You hear it here in verse three. If you, Lord, were to keep account of guilty deeds, Lord, who could stand? He's feeling the depths of sin and guilt. Who could stand? No one. But here's the hope of the cry. It's one word. There is one word that is infused with hope at the very beginning of verse three. In English, it is only two letters. If. What is the reality of the king of hope and his relationship to us as his people? It is that he doesn't He doesn't keep account of guilty deeds because no one could stand. That's why he's crying out with such faith. That is the difference. There's a difference between crying out in hopeless, unimaginable guilt with no one to save. That's a horrible, heart-wrenching, blood-curdling cry. But that's not the cry of the psalmist. That's not the cry of the Christian. The cry of the Christian is if... When you feel the weight of your sin, when you feel the guilt of God's law, you say, if you were to keep a record of wrongs, I would never stand. But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. That's the gospel. You see them both packed in here, law and gospel. The law which crushes us and drives us into despair and discouragement and the gospel which comes in and comforts us like a pillow on which we lay our aching heads. This is the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for us by coming into our world. The psalmist knows the depths of sin, but what is more important is the psalmist knows the depths of the Lord's forgiveness. And that forgiveness, which so works in the hearts of sinners like us, that we don't just grudgingly come to him, we don't just come and fall before him and grovel at his feet and spend eternity there. What do we do? So that you may be revered so that you may be worshiped, so that you may be glorified, so we may be pulled back onto our feet and our hands stuck into the sky and our faces facing you, not with furrowed brows, not with drooping mouths, not with heads kicked back in despair, but with a smile on our faces because you've been so good to us. Because with you, with you there is forgiveness. The God who does not keep account of our guilty deeds. The first response to this king of hope is to cry out to him. I'm not very good at this. I'm not very skilled at this. 
I'm not very wise about this or consistent at this. Maybe you aren't either. So here's a simple suggestion, a simple application that you and I could put into practice, even if we just began this Christmas season, starting today all the way through until Christmas morning, that every day you open your Bible to Psalm 130 and you make this your cry. You cry the whole psalm. It's not that long. You cry the whole psalm to the Lord, focusing in on the the different aspects that we're seeing today, feeling the depth of need, feeling your own guilt. That might take some, uh, a little bit of stinging search in the scriptures to remind yourself of just what does it mean for me to be a sinner? Why, Why am I crying out like this? But then to look at the king of hope and to cry out to him, In this hope-filled way, there is forgiveness with you. Thank you. Thank you for sending your son. But we find another way to respond to our king of hope, and that is that in addition to crying out in faith, we wait. We wait in hope for the king of hope. This really says something about the heart that genuinely cries out in faith. The heart that has been so tempered by the reality of of sin and guilt and suffering and feeling the depths of that need, that heart is so desperate and that heart is so convinced that this God has abundant forgiveness to give that that heart is willing to do what no other heart will do. That that heart will wait. That heart will wait because it is the ultimate picture of dependence. If a dog is man's best friend, which dog is the best of friends to his master? It's the one that knows how to wait. Have you ever had a dog or been around someone who had a dog or seen them on, on TV or, or on YouTube? Dogs fetching balls or or. Um, imaginary ducks that have fallen out of the sky or real ducks. Do you know what the best dogs do? They sit and wait. And they wait until the master says, go get it. The best dogs will wait and wait and wait and wait. You see them, they're ready, they're antsy, they're, they're, they're listening, they're on guard, but they're waiting. That's the heart of the Christian who waits in hope, he or she is able to wait. Verse five, he says, I wait for the Lord. Boy, what a kind of understatement here. Thinking about this psalmist living at this time with a a forward-looking promise of a coming redeemer, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the redeemer of the world, waiting for him. Waiting, watching, waiting, watching. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and I wait for his word. I'm grateful for this verse right here because it unpacks so much of what it means to wait. This is something else that I'm just not very good at. I need to better understand it. What does that mean? Well, look at the way that it builds in the psalm to give a comprehensive picture of what you and I would look like as Christians who wait in this way. 
the psalmist waits first. We saw a bit of this earlier, but waits in particular for the Lord. For Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, I wait for the Lord. But he doesn't end there. He adds something else to it, building, like building blocks, one on top of another. The psalmist waits next with his soul. My soul waits. My essence, the true heart of my life waits. But not only that, another block is added as the psalmist waits in particular for his word. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and I wait for his word. If you're a good Bible student, you immediately have a question. What word? Because the Bible is full of words. In particular, it's got two big kinds of words. It has words of law and condemnation, and it has words of grace and gospel. What kind of word do you think he's waiting on? What word is he expecting? You should already know because of what we've already seen in the first four verses. What word is he waiting on? He is waiting on the word of grace. That is what he's wanting. That is what he's sitting in the field waiting to have. God, show me your grace. Show me your mercy. That's what I expect from you. It is a beautiful picture of real waiting on his word, which is full of mercy. Is he waiting on the word of crushing law? Is that what he's waiting for? He's waiting to get cracked in the head because of all the guilty deeds he's done? He's not. He already knows that that record is is not being kept. Instead, he's waiting on the word of life-giving hope. That's why he says in verse 6, putting it all together, my soul waits in hope for the Lord. And that's it. That's the end of the psalm. He's done. That's all he has to say about that. Close it up. We can go home. Well, that's not true, is it? Because you see there are other verses. He's not done. You see how important this is to him? You see how important it is to God that this get communicated to us? It keeps building. It keeps going. We keep getting different angles of it. And then he gives us an analogy. Notice what he says. My soul waits in hope for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. There's an analogy. It's picturing back in, in, in those days, prior times, when there would be watchmen on the tower, on the wall, watching for threat. They're watching through the night. They're keeping guard. They have to stay alert and awake. They're waiting and waiting and waiting. What are they waiting on? They're waiting for the day of their relief. They're waiting for the sun to rise and their shift to end. They're waiting on the relief from the tedious time of watching. That's why this is repeated over and over again. My soul waits in hope for the Lord more than the watchmen for the morning who don't want anything more at 6 a.m. than for the morning to come, being up all night long. And then he repeats it, yes, more than the watchmen for the morning. But notice what happens next. It's not enough for this just to end here as a a personal waiting. But instead, he turns it and he points it outward at the rest of God's people. And he gives this command, Israel, 
God's people, God's chosen, God's elect, the, the, the ones that God has, has so loved and brought into covenant with him, his people, wait. Wait for the Lord. This is a community of people waiting, calling others. It's the comprehensive picture of waiting. And friends, I want you to see what I need to see that this is the Christian life. This is what the Christian life is. It is waiting in hope. Not waiting for hope, waiting in hope in the present. Now that's where I want you to see something and we're going to slow down for a second because there's an opportunity for us to reconnect something that is so easily disconnected in our lives. So pay attention to this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, we get a helpful teaching on what it means to wait in hope in this present moment. Because again, we're not simply waiting for something off in the future. We're waiting today with hope, not with something that's coming. What about today? How does this change the way that we live and wait today? What does it look like to live and wait today? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18. And let me show you this. This is what Paul says. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Well, that's a mouthful. But this is what it means. It means that living in hope is not only about the future. Living in hope today, as we're reading in Psalm 130, is about a golden chain that connects this present reality to the reality to come. What will it be like in the heavenly kingdom when we're there at the, the wedding feast, when the banquet table is laid out with this incredible spread of all different kinds of, of delights from around the world, the nations of the world represented not only around the table, but on the table. What is that like when you're looking forward to the heavenly kingdom, when you will be there, yes, you will be without sin. Yes, you'll be without suffering. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. What will we do? We will adore him. We will appreciate him. Why? Yes, because of who he is. Yes, because of his character and nature. But that's not all. We will adore him because of what he did today. When we're sitting around that table enjoying it, what will we be adoring him about? The things that we remember of the ways that he cared for us. Put it this way. Where did all of that food, the brisket and the salad and the mashed potatoes and the weird deviled eggs, we'll probably call it something different then. <laughs> all of the cookies of the nations of the world that are all spread upon that table. Where do you think all of that food came from? 
it grew here today. It grew out of the seeds of what Paul says are momentary light afflictions, producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Where is that glory coming from? Where did it grow? How did it get harvested? It grew today. It grew in seeds in your life. When God walked with you, when God cared for you with his people, the way that he encouraged you and comforted you and showed you grace and did not keep a record of your guilty deeds. That's what's happening. That's the chain that's missing in so many of our lives. That's part of the reason why this life is such a struggle. That chain breaks too easily. We've disconnected the world to come from the world that is now. But when we reconnect it, we are able, we are able to look forward knowing that these moments matter, knowing that these moments are the times when we can wait in hope because he is not just working in the future, he is working here now. One of the greatest examples of someone who has been waiting in hope is Johnny Erickson Tata. In 1967, at 17 years old, she dove into a pool head first, didn't realize how shallow it was and instantly became a quadriplegic. She was thrust into despair. She wanted nothing but to die. She could not imagine how her life would matter at all. She was not a Christian. And then she came to Christ. And her life began to change. And her life became decades of waiting and hope. Decades of serving and hope. Listen to what she said about waiting. She said, whether it is the furnace of a sudden fiery trial or the slow endurance of a stone being worn smooth by the flow of water, our endurance in trials is preparing us to receive the joys of heaven. God wastes nothing. And whatever you're waiting for, be assured that God is at work. That's coming from someone who knows what it means, knows what it means to wait. Someone who is, who is maintaining a connection, though imperfectly like all of us, of the golden chain from this world to the world to come. And it is the key, it is the key to waiting in hope. Another wonderful example from many years ago, Fanny Crosby, one of the most prolific hymn writers who was born and developed an eye infection and just at two months old because someone else who was not well trained tried to treat that eye she was blinded from that moment on. And yet, in spite of that, God used her to write over 9,000 hymns, so many hymns, she had to write many of them with a, a pen name, a false name, so not to saturate the market of her hymns. Listen to what she said. When someone remarked, well-meaning, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts. Fanny Crosby responded at once as she had heard such comments before. She said, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been, uh, it would have been that I was born blind? Said the poet who had been able to see only for the first six weeks of life. She went on and said, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. That is what our hearts are like when the chain is connected. So what are we to do with this? We must simply water the seeds of future glory by waiting in hope today. If I could give you one overarching encouragement this morning, it is simply that. Make that connection. 
every day strive after making that connection between everything that is happening in this life, which are all, as Paul says, momentary light afflictions compared to the glory to come, the connection that everything today is growing up into the glory of tomorrow. Everything. Because God is at work in it all. And we have the great joy of watering those seeds by waiting today in hope, knowing that he is at work today. Well, what is the hoped for result? What is the third response? Where's all of this going? It's gone from the depths to waiting in hope to where? Here it is, finally. We also respond to the, to the king of hope by rejoicing in the mercy that he gives. It says next, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. Oh, that is something so easily forgotten. We think about all that's wrong in the world. We see so much wrong in ourselves. We see so much wrong in other people. We're so in tune to sin and trouble, misdeeds, conflicts. Sometimes we lose sight of this simple truth with him is abundant redemption. Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever asked yourself, what is God's will in heaven? When you follow that golden chain all the way to the end, what is that like? What is your experience of heaven going to be like as a Christian? Among many things at the top of the list is ultimate rejoicing because he has been so merciful to the world. That is what heaven will be like. It is a place of unending ultimate gladness in Christ. And what has Jesus prayed? He has prayed that your will, unending ultimate gladness in Christ, would be on earth. And that's what Jesus Christ has brought to us by coming into our world and doing all of this incredible work for us, showing us mercy. He's done it to make us glad in him. As I recently heard it put, helpful reminder to me, John three sixteen does not say, for God was so angry with the world that he gave his only son. That is not the kind of God that we serve. We serve a God who has so loved the world that he's gave his only son and he has showered the world with mercy. Is he angry? Of course he is. He's a righteous God overseeing a fallen world. But what is the beauty of the gospel? He has chosen to triumph over judgment with mercy. And therefore we are called to rejoice in the mercy of of the king of hope. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a hymn about Psalm 130, about waiting in hope, actually using Psalm 130. You hear much of it here. So I just want to read the, the last two stanzas of the, of, the, of, the, of the hymn. He wrote this in 1524. It was performed at, uh, at Martin Luther's funeral and some other places. 
But it wasn't until much later, talk about waiting, 200 years later before Johann Sebastian Bach put music to it, and it was performed for ultimately the first time in its full glory in 1724. Talk about waiting. Listen to this. In you alone, O God, we hope, and not in our own merit. We rest our fears in your good word. Uphold our fainting spirit. Your promised mercy is my fort, my comfort, and my strong support. I wait for it with patience. My soul is waiting for you, Lord, as one who longs for morning. No watcher waits with greater hope than I for your returning. I hope as Israel in the Lord, who sends redemption through the word. Praise God for grace and mercy. The psalmist closes this psalm here by showing us the source of this ringing gladness, and it's right in front of our faces. It is mercy and abundant redemption from guilt. This is the rejoicing of the psalmist. This is the gladness that he envisions in your life and mine. This is what we need more of. This is why we need the golden chain connected and remaining. Now, I know that the buttoned up, sour, Scroogey Christians will look at this and say, well, where does it say rejoice? Where does it say glad? I don't see those words there. Where does it say glad in every verse? The psalm shows the ultimate fulfillment of the heart's desire. What do you think the psalmist is like when all of his waiting and all of his crying from the depths is answered with abundant redemption? Everything in his heart is singing. And his crying from the depths, from the depths of despair, have turned into crying of worship and crying of ultimate gladness in God. Therefore, I am challenged by this text, and I challenge you as well to chase after that. Chase after that heavenly gladness during these earthly days looking at everything going on in our world, in our lives, in our homes, in our church, and seeing the many ways that God is growing all of these seeds up to future glory as we are waiting for the King of hope. That is what we want this Christmas season to be about. We want it to be about a renewal in our hearts and minds. The Christmas and the gospel is about that very thing, a God who has not kept a record of our guilty deeds, a God who has sent his son into the world to live a perfect life, to love God with all of his heart, soul, and mind, and his neighbor as himself, to die on the cross in our place and to rise from the dead. And one day, one day to come again as we wait in hope. I want to invite you to stand with me now as you're able so that we can pray and thank God for this and prepare our hearts to sing once again this morning, but to set our minds on this truth that we have hope because of Jesus Christ. We have hope because of his grace and his mercy and his goodness. We have hope because of the gospel. Please stand with me now. Our Father, we give you thanks this morning for your ultimate mercy. We feel it. We feel it, though, not as we should, not as we could, the depths of our own sin, of our own need, of our own suffering. Some seasons bring it to the forefront of our minds. Others push it behind 
We pray that you would give us a real sense of our need and that would drive us in dependence to you. And we pray that this truth that you have given to us in Christ, a king of hope, a king of mercy, who has chosen not to express and pour out your wrath upon us, but to pour out your grace, that it would change everything about us, that our cry would be full of hope, that it would be full of gladness because of what you have done for us. We pray that that would characterize our church characterize our lives. We know that there's ever a reason to be discouraged. We are in a constant fight against discouragement and despair in this life and in this world, but you are up to the task. And so we ask you today as a church to fill us, fill us with hope. Give us a clear vision of that golden chain from this moment in these days to the coming kingdom in which we will sit around your throne and worship you. And we will worship you because of these days. And with that truth in our hearts and minds, we wait. And we wait in hope on you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.